greatest theologians of the 20th century was a man named Calvin. Now, not John Calvin, the theologian from centuries earlier, but Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes, the comic strip. <laughs> Calvin was one of my favorite comic strips back in the 80s and 90s. I learned a lot from him. He was an interesting person. I often said, when we meet his dad in the comic strip, I often said that in some ways his dad could very well have been Dennis the Menace because there were lots of similarities there between them and you could see where Calvin got his own mischievousness. Um, one of my favorite cartoons of Calvin and Hobbes is one where Calvin has decided to build for himself a transmogrifier. It's a great big shipping box and it has a little dial that he's drawn on the side and it has control for monster and person. And so he gets into the box and he tells his uh, stuffed tiger, Hobbes, okay, I'm going to turn into a monster. So he gets into the box and he tells, him to he tells Hobbes to turn the dial to monster. Hobbes does and then Calvin comes out and attacks him. Then Hobbes pushes him back into the box, turns it to person, and out comes Calvin, and he looks normal. So he says, let's try this again. And this time, Calvin puts his stuffed tiger, Hobbes, into the box. And he turns it to monster, and out comes a monster. He then turns it to, he realizes it doesn't have anything for tiger on it. So he turns it to person, and out comes who but Calvin, of course. And they talk to each other as Calvin and Calvin. One of them is Hobbes. They talk to each other. And then one of them goes back in and switches it to, mon he switches it to monster. Out comes a monster. He switches it back to person, and out comes Hobbes, uh, uh, Calvin again. How do we get to fix this, he says. And one of the Calvins says, here. He takes the marker, and he writes Hobbes on it. And then they look at each other, and then they say, which one of us goes in? <laughs> Finally, one of them goes in, and he turns it to Hobbes, and out comes the tiger. Transmogrification and not knowing what you're going to get. It's one of my favorite cartoons from Calvin and Hobbes, and it makes me think, every time I see it, it makes me think about the transfiguration of Jesus, because it's a mystery, just like that box was a mystery, and you never knew what was going to come out until you set the dial so also, this is one of those mystery stories. A story about Jesus. A story about Jesus that doesn't fit the mold of an itinerant rabbi, teacher, and healer. Instead, it's one of those mystery images of Jesus where we get a glimpse of who He really is. Who He really is in this world, who he really is in eternity, who he really is for us. Now, this takes place on Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is a mountain that's kind of in the middle but to the side of the Jezreel Valley in northern Israel. And it's within easy range of Nazareth on one side of the Jezreel Valley and Megiddo on the other side. In other words, the town of Jesus' upbringing, Nazareth on one side, and the town where the final conflict, Armageddon, is supposed to take place on the other side. And it's in view of all of this region. And from the top of it, you can look down and you can see the Sea of Galilee on one side. And if you look to the 
west, you can see in the distance the Mediterranean Sea on the other side. In other words, it's a very important place. In view of uh, history in the Scripture and in view of the future for what would happen next, we have a site, a place that's centrally located. And we have an event taking place on it that is also centrally located in the Christian interpretation of Jesus. And it comes from the very earliest period, this story. This story would have been an amazing thing to preach about amongst Jews. You have Jesus there on the mountain with Peter, James, and John there. And they look up and they see Jesus being transformed, transfigured, not into some monster or into a stuffed tiger, but he's being transformed by the glory of God, by the dazzling brightness of God's glory in their midst. And not only that, that's amazing enough, friends, not only that, but on either side of him, you have Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. I often wonder, how do they know which one is Moses and which one is Elijah? They don't have name tags. Hello, my name is Moses. Hello, my name is Elijah. They just knew. Somehow they knew that it was Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. Moses, the lawgiver. Moses, who received the Ten Commandments and the law of Yahweh Elohim, the creator of this universe. Moses, who brought the people out of captivity in Egypt. Moses, one of the most important, critical characters in all Hebrew faith and history. Moses, the symbol of the law on one side. And on the other side, you've got Elijah, the symbol of all the prophets. Some would say one of the most important prophets in all of Hebrew history. So you have Moses and Elijah symbolizing the law of God and the prophets of God, symbolizing the entirety of God's revelation to God's people. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. They are witnessing to who this Jesus is. And Peter, James, and John, they see it. They're amazed by it. Jesus is standing there kind of like a stained glass window on a, on a beautiful sunny day. Uh, these stained glass windows, they fluoresce from behind with the sunlight and it's, they're bright even. Well, today it's a little dim outside because of the clouds, but it was like Jesus was standing there and God's light, God's love was shining through him and out from him to them. And they could see in him something that they had not seen before. They had seen and, and heard and, and guessed at it with his healings. And they'd seen and heard and guessed at it with his teachings. They watched him heal people and deliver people from demons. They watched him work wonders. And they listened as he preached and taught. Preached and taught important messages. Preached and taught about himself. Preached and taught about how we were called to live. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. My friends, they, they had heard and they'd walked and they talked with this Jesus and they followed him. They were his disciples. And here they were getting a glimpse. A glimpse of a sight through 
to who this Jesus actually is. Not just a good and wise teacher, not just a common everyday rabbi, but someone more. Someone to whom the law and the prophets had been pointing all along. Someone more than just a rabbi. Indeed, someone to whom the glory of God points and from whom the glory of God shines. Jesus. Now we see this in John's Gospel in chapter 1 when it says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And later on the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we have a glimpse of it in the Gospels and the commentary from later. This is an event in the midst of Jesus' life, in the midst of His teaching and His preaching, in which we get to see, we get to have a glimpse that this Jesus is not just a person, not just a human, but also the very presence and the very glory, or the Hebrew word is Shekinah, of God in their presence in their midst, and that the law and the prophets all attested to that. This is an important moment, an important moment in the understanding of who Jesus is, an important moment in which we ask ourselves, who is this Christ that we follow? In the 1968 movie, The Shoes of the Fisherman, based on a book by Morris West, the Austrian actor, Oscar Wenner, played Father David Telemann, an anthropologist and theologian on staff at the Vatican, who was undergoing an investigation, a tribunal, into his heresies in his writings. And in the movie, there's a particular scene where they're gathered together and all of the theologians and bishops of the church are there facing him, and he's sitting there with them, and they ask him, they say to him, there is much in your writings that is of great beauty and wisdom and truth. And we recognize this. But we have one important question. We come to the central question of the faith. What think ye of Christ? Who is Jesus in your understanding? And he couldn't answer the question. He struggled and he fought, and he gave a response which did not please the bishops. Because he struggled with understanding and articulating this idea of Jesus as God and man, God and human, fully human, fully divine. Who is Jesus for you? Who is Jesus in your life? What does Jesus do for you? For some of us, it's a theoretical question. He was a good and wise teacher who lived 2,000 years ago, who was arrested for crimes he did not commit, who was executed for crimes he did not commit. You can speak to scholars all over the world who will say that he was a good and wise teacher who said some things that you should listen to, but you know maybe lots of things that he were attributed to him he didn't actually say. You can hear these people, they talk about him like that, a lot. And it misses the question of who is Jesus Christ for you? Is he your rabbi, 
your teacher, your friend? Is he the one who establishes a way of life for you in his teachings and his preachings? Is he the one who shines God's light on your path? the light of God's love, the light of God's grace. My mother is currently struggling with lung cancer. And on the phone with her yesterday, she says she trusts in God because she knows that Jesus is her healer. She's focusing in on the healing ministry that he had when he laid hands on people and healed them, and when he cast out demons, and he raised the dead. And she knows because of his love for her, she knows that she has nothing to fear because Jesus is her healer. Jesus is her Savior. Jesus is her Lord. Jesus is our Savior our Lord, our healer, our redeemer, our companion in this life, yes, our rabbi, our teacher, our friend, our brother, as the hymn said today when we sang our opening hymn, our brother in this life. But Jesus, as we discover on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is God, or as God himself says, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's, it's something of a rebuke of Peter. He wants to get into the midst of this. He wants to have something to do. He wants to build some booths or some dwelling places for Elijah and for Moses and for Jesus. He's trying to get him to stay there. He's excited. And God says, hush. Peter, you're really good at taking your left foot and putting it into your mouth all the way to the ankle. Stop it! This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Are we listening to Jesus? Are we following our blessed Lord? Are we seeing the light that shines forth from him on our path? And are we sharing that light? With others. I went on my walk to Emmaus in 1997. It was Dallas walk number 97 and I sat at the table of Luke and there I heard a lot of things that I knew already knew. Passages of scriptures I had read many times but it was the relationships at the table talking with my fellow pilgrims on that walk to Emmaus that had the greatest impact on me. I can remember standing there, we were singing a song, Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze, set our hearts on fire. And I looked around, and I could see in my brothers around the room the blazing light of God's love that shone forth through Jesus there on Mount Tabor, the blazing light of God's love, the fire of the presence of the Spirit alive in my brothers there in the conference room as we worship together. Shine, Jesus, shine. This Jesus, 
who was floresced there on Mount Tabor, whom Peter, James, and John saw, about whom God spoke, this is my beloved son, and him I am well pleased. Listen to him. This Jesus is the one we are called to follow and walk in the light of his grace and share that light with others. If that's whom we are called to follow, and if his light is the light we are to follow and have shine on our paths, why don't we share it with others? I'm convinced that we often don't share the light of God's love with others because we're possibly afraid it's going to run out for us. We believe, but do we have faith? Remember, the definition of faith is not just belief. It's taking the belief and acting upon it. It's taking your belief and hanging your life upon it. Trusting in God so much that you take your belief and live your life accordingly. That's what faith is. Belief in action. Belief that is active, not passive. Belief that moves, that walks, that flies, that runs. Belief that opens the self to the presence of God and responds with actions of grace towards others. Why do we not do it? Why do we hide it inside? Because sometimes I believe we're afraid that it will run out for us. We, we only have so much. We've got to conserve it. We can't share it. We've got to conserve it. Or I might end up sharing it with someone who doesn't deserve it. Guess what? None of us deserve the light of God's love. It's a free gift given to us, not without price, but with the greatest price ever paid, the life of Christ on the cross. In other words, the gift of God's love is without price. It's beyond price. And we are called not to hoard it, but to share it with others. That's what we're called to do. That is how the light of Christ is called to change us. Now, in the darkness... There's fear. In the darkness, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark. And I was afraid especially of that dark that's under the bed. You don't know what's down there. One of the most frightening scenes from the movie The Poltergeist is when, he's, when the boy is looking underneath the bed. And you expect that dummy to be down there, that clown dummy to be down there and grab him. And he isn't there. And you go, it's not there. And then he sits up and it's behind him and it grabs him. The dark can be scary. And that's where the light of God shining into our lives banishes the dark and banishes the monsters of the dark to bring joy and the knowledge of God's will for us. So we can't hoard it. We can't keep it to ourselves. It must shine forth from us. We must share that love, the love of God's presence the love that was shining forth from Christ. We must share it with all. 
And friends, it's never going to run out. It's never going to come to an end. It will always be there. No amount of going astray will cause it to cease. No amount of sinning. Let's name it what it is. No amount of sinning will cause God to stop loving you. Oh, Greg, I've done too much. I've been too evil. <laughs> I've done too many things that God will not forgive me for. Guess what? Jesus already died for it on the cross. Well, it's too much, Greg. Sorry, no, it's never too much for Jesus. The light of God's love will never come to an end. All you have to do is say yes and accept it. I wish you could take that cartoon of Calvin and Hobbes and add another one in addition to human and monster and tiger. I wish you could add Jesus and then go in and turn it to Jesus and let the love of God be shared with everyone. Everyone we meet. Well, guess what? You can. By faith, we can share the love of Jesus with others. Because on that walk to Emmaus, when I looked around and I saw all those men, and I saw them shining, shine Jesus, shine with the shine, light of the glory of God. My shining through them to me. We must be open to the light of God's love shining through us to others. Because you, we, may be the only Jesus that others will see. In our actions, in our words, in how we treat others, and what we say and do, we may be the only representation, the only hands and the feet, and the eyes and the ears and the lips of Jesus, the only a body of Christ that some people will ever see. And we must witness to his love, to his forgiveness, to his grace and peace. Today, the last Sunday before the beginning of Lent, is an opportunity to tap on the brakes, to say, hold on. Whoa! Like Peter, stop your talking and listen to Jesus and witness his transfiguring love. A love that is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. A love that we receive by faith. And a love that by faith we are called to share with others. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And may God's people say, Let Amen. Me dwell in your prayer.